One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. Hey guys, it's Dr. Noseworthy. We're back again for another episode of the Inflammation Nation podcast. And I have to apologize. Well, I don't know if I have to apologize. I feel like I do. I've been absent for uh, about a month or so, pretty much the entire month of April, I think a little part of March as well. Um, and it wasn't intentional. My wife and I uh, had some traveling to do. Some of it was business and work related. Some of it was uh, seeing family. We had new babies or grandbabies being born into the family. Uh, and we also had some, uh, what what turned out to be okay, but initially was some very potentially scary health issues happening in family members. Uh, and that just simply took me away from uh, a lot of my normal and, and routine things, including the podcast. So if you've wondered where I've been over the last month or so, that's where I've been. Still here, just not online on the podcast. So here we're back and we're talking still about this idea of a functional hierarchy. Uh, and if this is the first episode that you're dropping into, um, functional hierarchy basically refers to this idea that certain systems or functions in your body that underlie either your health or your, your dis-ease and your dysfunction, um, there is a hierarchy of function in, in that there are some things that are more important than others. And so again, if this is the first episode you're dropping into, back up a few episodes where we start talking initially about the functional hierarchy and start developing this, this concept. Uh, and giving you a framework to think. And, and the whole point of this is to recognize that when you're unwell, usually it's not just one thing, usually it's multiple things and they tend to intertwine. But the question comes is if you have several things going at the same time, what is it you try to fix first? And that's the, the functional hierarchy is there and it serves as kind of a guidepost, if you will, to say, okay, if you have problems A, B and C, B is important. C is important, but A is the most important. Let's start working there. That's what this whole concept is about. So the topic today, and this is to try to go back and pick up the line of thought that we had uh, right to the point, right up to the point where I had to take the break. Uh, and so today we're going to be talking about metabolic flexibility and fat, dietary fat as a fuel source. I guess we could even say body fat as a fuel source, because you can certainly break that down and the fatty acids generated by that are uh, an adequate and ready fuel source for pretty much all types of functions. Not all, but you know, many. Um, but let's start with this idea of metabolic flexibility. This is a term that has, I guess, appeared in the last five, maybe seven years or so in, in the social media, the internet sphere, the blogosphere, YouTube, um, but it's been in the medical literature for longer than that. And initially, the concept of flexibility was, was studied in the context of people who had high blood sugar, insulin resistance, prediabetes, and diabetes. And it was talking, basically, the concept speaks to the adaptability of the human organism to create energy or to shift its physiology based on demand. And so metabolic flexibility means that you're flexible. You can do this or you can do that. And you can do them with equal efficiency 
whenever the cause ar arises. Now, the reason why I start by stating that as you know, kind of some of a what of a, a quasi definition is because invariably when people talk about metabolic flexibility, they typically talk about that as just simply the ability to burn fat as a fuel source. And I certainly understand why they say that, but they're kind of ignoring burning glucose uh, as a fuel source as well. And, and somebody might say, well, you know, doc, pretty much everyone's running a glucose, glucose or a, a carbohydrate based metabolism, or maybe I should say carbohydrate dominant metabolism. So the issue isn't really burning carbs as a fuel source, because that's what most people are doing, especially in the standard American diet. The issue is whether or not we can burn fat as fuel. And, and this is the, the loss of this concept or function of metabolic flexibility as it relates to fat as a fuel source really relates to increased rates of obesity, uh, but more particularly in circumstances where people want to lose body fat, but they can't for one reason or another. And, and there's many different reasons why someone may struggle to lose body fat and change their body composition. One of the reasons is this loss of metabolic flexibility. But to be, you know, kind of scientifically honest and, and technical, metabolic flexibility means that you can burn either fat or carbohydrates or glucose as your fuel source based on your activity and your demand. And so let me clarify this one thing. And I believe I've said this before, is that when we talk about creating energy at the cellular level to fuel function and functionality, we oftentimes talk about burning carbohydrates or glucose and, and burning fat as if you can do exclusively one or the other. And there are pretty much no, there is one exception, but let me just kind of say it this way, that there's really no practical circumstance where the average person is going to be burning only fat as a fuel source or only glucose and carbohydrates. It's always a mixture. But the relative contribution of fat or carbohydrates to whatever energy you're producing at the time is going to be dependent on the energy demands of the circumstance or the activity that you're involved in combined with your ability to flip the switch and go from one to the other. So for example, if I am some kind of, you know, let's say I'm just an average guy and I'm sitting around and I decide I'm going to go and go to the gym and do high intensity interval training, or I'm going to lift heavy weights. Um, basically what I'm saying to my body is I need to create energy very quickly to sustain high energy output over short periods of time. And that requires predominantly carbohydrate metabolism, but you're still burning fat. This is one of the reasons why resistance training and high intensity interval training, particularly in combination, are very good at, at reducing fat, not because you're burning more fat while you're doing it, but because it's, you know, quote unquote, speeds up your metabolism, you burn more total calories, uh, more total calories, a portion of which comes from fat. So backing up, because I, oh gosh, I can go down this bunny trail quite a bit, but I guess for, for you, um, if you're listening to the podcast and you feel like you have these metabolic issues that are rooted to some degree in inflammation, you have to be aware that it is desirable to be metabolic flexibility, flexible, metabolically flexible. And if you're not, you need to work to try to restore that because there's only advantage and there's no downside. There's only advantage to being metabolically flexible. So why is it important? Well, first of all, it 
allows you to create energy from a given profile of fat and carbohydrates that is suitable to your activity and the demands that those activities place on you from a cellular energy mechanic standpoint. So it is how you fuel function, being able to switch between fat and glucose metabolism. When you lose metabolic flexibility, in general, what that means is you do lose the ability to burn fat as a fuel source to a certain extent. That locks you into carbohydrate metabolism, along which comes the increased risk of metabolic disease associated with high blood sugar states. And again, that would be the whole spectrum between insulin resistance, prediabetes or metabolic syndrome, and then full-blown uh, diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes. When you have metabolic flexibility, you diminish your risk of developing those things. So it's not really just about, hey, burning fat for fuel, losing body fat, looking, feeling good. That's all part of it. A lot of it has to do with reducing the risk of these high blood sugar states. And when you do that, you reduce the risk, number one, of inflammation because that's a pro-inflammatory state. You also reduce your risk for developing obesity and cardiovascular disease. And that would include things like heart attacks and stroke. So it's absolutely relevant to short-term health concerns. It's also relevant to long-term health care concerns when you start thinking about longevity or what's commonly called health span right now, which is being healthy over a long period of time. So one of the questions, if we can kind of leave it there and say, okay, I, I have a loose understanding of what metabolic flexibility is. How do you know if you have it? How do you know if you've lost it? Well, let's confine ourselves to a version of metabolic flexibility that's really only concerned about whether or not you can tap into fat as a fuel source. And what that means basically is that if you deprive yourself of carbohydrates, either because you omit carbohydrates or you reduce carbohydrates, or maybe you go on some kind of a fast, whether it's a short-term 16-hour fast that's commonly practiced right now, or maybe you do some kind of extended fast over maybe two or, or even three days, which again can have a lot of different metabolic uh, advances or advantages. But if you drop out your carbohydrates to one extent or another, we would expect your body to be able to go, okay, you're not feeding me carbohydrates. So I can do one of two things. I can manufacture glucose on my own, and this is your body's intelligence speaking. I can manufacture glucose on my own, and the liver can do that through a couple of different mechanisms. Gluconeogenesis is the primary one. Or we can do glycogenolysis, which is breaking glycogen down to create glucose. Or we can tap into body fat stores, or if you're just dropping out carbs, but you're still eating and you're consuming dietary fat, maybe we can use the fatty acids that are coming in from the diet. And then we, again, switch, basically, that's a, that's a strong influence over whether or not you should or should not be burning fat as a fuel source. Just simply reduce or drop out your carbohydrates. And so people who do not tolerate fasting very well meaning it's a real rough and bumpy ride. And they usually abandon it pretty quickly because they feel like crap. People who have to eat frequently, maybe every couple of hours to quote unquote, keep their blood sugar up. Uh, people who destabilize after a night of overnight fasting, like you just, you know, eat dinner at night and you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and you're not functioning very well, particularly if you haven't slept and you've been waking up frequently. 
These are all potential signs that you have lost your metabolic flexibility. But I would tell you that the hallmark symptomatology, not the symptomatology, but the hallmark circumstance that would say to you that you've lost your metabolic flexibility would be the inability to tolerate or quickly adapt to low carbohydrate intake or fasting, which would include zero carbohydrate intake. That's the main issue. And so if you fall apart when you don't eat a certain amount of carbs, if you fall apart when you try to fast for more than 14, 16 hours, if you would never, ever again think about doing a full day, 24 or 48 or 72-hour fast because you don't function and you feel worse, you have lost your metabolic flexibility. And I would say it's incumbent on you if your goal is to be healthy and in metabolic control or balance and control, it is incumbent upon you to be able to develop that capacity. Don't just ignore it. And a lot of times what we'll do in the short term, let's say I have somebody that I'm working with in my my one-on-one practice. If they tend, in fact, I have this as a question on my intake form, you know, what was your, have you ever fasted and how did it make you feel? And some of the options are, hey, I felt great right away. I felt great, but it took some time. Like I initial, initially felt bad, but then after a day or two, I felt great. Or I fell apart. I'll never do this again. <laughs> and those are not like literally the options, but you know, that kind of gives you an idea of what the question and the potential answers are trying to communicate to me as a practitioner. So when someone doesn't tolerate fasting, my first goal is to find the lowest carbohydrate intake that they can handle and still function on it. And I don't care what the number is. If it's a 120 grams of carbs, that's their starting point. I don't care. If it's 52 grams of carbs a day, I don't care. All I want to know is what's the lowest amount of carbs that you can consume and still function fairly well on. And then over time, let's start to lower that and get you to the point where you can go, say, from 100 grams of carbs a day to 75 grams of carbs a day and still function down to 50 grams of carbs a day, down to 30 grams of carbs a day. And if you decide at some point you want to try carnivore where you're eating zero grams of carbs a day, I'm perfectly fine with that as long as we have a rational reason to do it and as long as you're functioning well. So there are some people who do function better with some carbs in their diet. But understand that from a a true physiological standpoint, you should be able to tolerate zero carbs. And I'm not saying that that's what you should be doing, but you should have the capacity to do that. And again, no circumstance reveals your capacity or your, your potential for metabolic flexibility more than going low carb or going keto or more specifically trying to do some kind of an extended or a prolonged fast. So let me, let me summarize and then I'm just going to give you a list of things that causes a lack of metabolic flexibility. And we'll kind of finish with that as we get back into the routine of doing podcasts again. So the, the summary is this. Metabolic flexibility is a highly desirable feature of human physiology, health, and wellness. You want your body to have the ability to switch the relative contribution of fat as a fuel source or carbohydrates as a fuel source on demand. Meaning if I engage in some activity that needs more carbohydrate power type output, I can do that. But if I'm engaged in some activity that requires um, more efficiency in fat as a fuel source, whether that's dietary fat or body fat, then I need to be able to do that. 
if I lose my metabolic flexibility, it means that I've lost my adaptive capacity. And that's really what metabolic flexibility is. It is a subcomponent of physiological adaptability, changing your physiology to match circumstance environment or demands on the system. So how do we, how do we lose metabolic flexibility? Well, we could argue that some people have genetic influences, and this is true, right? We know, we know genes are involved in pretty much everything these days. But even in, for example, longevity studies, there are longevity genes, but they only have a small influence on what your longevity actually truly is. The biggest influence is how you live your life. And the same is true for pretty much all disease states. There are genes that predispose someone like me, for example, to insulin resistance. And I've shared with you before, I, I have this insulin resistant phenotype. And if I didn't eat well, control my carbs, um, fast periodically, if I didn't exercise consistently the way that I do, I would be a type two diabetic in a heartbeat. That's just my genetic background, but it's my choices that determine the reality in that. So yeah, genes are on the list. Let's just check that off and move on to other things. One of the big things is having chronically high insulin from carbohydrate dominant diets especially when you're combining that with a sedentary lifestyle and low protein and healthy fat intake, right? So you're just basically sitting around eating carbohydrates and unfavorable ones at that. That's the probably the quickest way to develop a lack of metabolic flexibility because what you're doing is you're teaching your body all you need are carbs. That's all you're going to get is carbs. And we're not even going to engage in activities that might require a relative increase in fat as a fuel source. Another way to develop lack of metabolic flexibility is kind of related because I said, you know, sedentary lifestyle, lack of exercise. But one of the big reasons why people become metabolically inflexible is a lack of glycogen storage capacity. Now, I've mentioned glycogen. I've spoken about it before. Glycogen is, let's call it the storage form of glucose. So inside your cells, you, glucose basically exists in this great big polymer with thousands of different glucose molecules all linked together in some kind of a complex polymer chain, if you will. Um, but the more glycogen you can store, the more glucose you can use. And this is predominantly tied to how much muscle that you have. And closely related to that is... A, a presence or an absence of types of exercise that actually teach your muscles to use glucose as your primary fuel source. And what is that? That's like your high intensity stuff and resistance type training that um, requires your muscles not just to generate power, but to generate power within a certain spectrum. And that would be kind of to the high to the medium intensity range. So let me back up and just summarize that because that's there was a lot of science compressed into a couple of simple statements that I just want to make sure I'm communicating this properly. The easiest way to develop a lack of metabolic flexibility or to become metabolically inflexible is to sit around and eat carbs, don't exercise, allow yourself to have high glucose and high insulin, lower your protein intake, allow your muscles to atrophy and don't use them in ways that require carbohydrates. That is basically the way that you become metabolically inflexibility. And that's really cool because it gives us an, an antidote, if you will, that if you are metabolically inflexible, how do you develop it? 
well, you cut out the carbs, you get your insulin levels down, you make sure your protein intake is adequate, and then you start doing things like resistance training to add muscle so you can store more glycogen and use carbohydrates more efficiently. And you train your muscles to use carbohydrates um, in that manner. And what ends up happening over time is that if you add more muscle, become more physically active, and teach your body to be more efficient at using carb as a fuel source, inevitably you also tap into your ability to use fat as a, as a fuel source as well. And so these two are intimately linked together. Now we can throw a couple of things in there and I'll just add these to the list and uh, you know, we'll, we'll close it out for today as this, hey, let's get back into the swing of things with podcasting. But in addition to your carbohydrate levels, your insulin levels, your muscle mass, your glycogen storage capacity, and the profile of your physical activity and the demand it places on your, on your body, things like stress chemistry, your cortisol levels, um, your sleep quality and quantity also have an impact on this, as well as endocrine disrupting chemicals that have impact on hormones like insulin. In, you know, for example, plastics or BPA is one of the things that we're all exposed to that can have a negative impact on insulin sensing mechanisms or let's say nutrient sensing mechanisms and start to disrupt these energy control pathways. All right, seems like I was rambling just a little bit, but that's fine. We're just kind of shaking things out and getting back into the habit of doing these podcasts. So stay tuned. I don't have anything on the horizon right now, at least that I can see coming. That's going to take me away from the microphone, you know, for the next couple of months or so. I do have some travel as we head uh, back through the eastern United States to get back to Canada. We're spending the summer back there with my family again, and we'll be there through the summer and then at least part of the fall. But um, we'll still be online. And so thanks again for listening. Thanks for understanding that life sometimes happens, but we're back. This is the Inflammation Nation, and we'll see you next time.